Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. The Universality of It All, Andres Bronemann's feature-length documentary, asks the question, what connects us? This film explores this simple yet complex question with profound perspective and intimate detail. Told through the lens of the filmmaker's longtime friend, Ahmad, a Yemeni refugee living in Vancouver, Bronemann examines the subject of human migration and how it relates to such varied topics as climate change, colonialism, neoliberalism, globalization, identity politics, fertility rates, wealth gaps, trade wars, terrorism, and the media. This is a wide-ranging documentary film, I think you can tell from that description, and beautifully done, and it poses so many interesting, provocative, and very relevant questions. The universality of it all. We're joined today by the director, Andres Brunneman. Andres, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you, Mike, for having me. Such an honor to be interviewed by you. As I said to you before we got started, there are so many things that I've been thinking and I've been talking to people about, but sometimes you feel like one of those crazy people that are, you know, you just don't know if you're, if this is something that is resonating with other people, or if you're just imagining these things are happening, but your film lays out beautifully. No, it is happening. And this perspective that you're able to pull out of this relationship between Yemen and Costa Rica is brilliant. So let's start with the very basic stuff here, which is what inspired this particular documentary film? So I guess as you were saying, for me, it was like a puzzle, right? Like there's so many ideas that I had of things that I wanted to make. Initially, the documentary was thought of as a, as a series. So in each episode, I was gonna discuss like different topics related to migration, like the topics that you're saying, like international trade in one, uh, let's say climate change on the other. Um, but the more I started getting into it, the more I realized that there were so many of these different aspects, ideas and topics that were interconnected to the topic of migration. Um, and simultaneous as I was doing my, my research, because uh, a lot of the documentary process, I, I mean, every documentarian has their different processes. I guess for me, it was first get the research and then do the film. As I was doing it, something happened with my best friend, who is Emad, uh, as you mentioned. And uh, he, he basically crossed the border from the U.S. to Canada to apply for asylum. And then this idea hit me that if I cannot tell the story of my own reality, you know, the country that I'm from, the friend that I have, uh, and how our stories are interconnected to migration, then which story am I really supposed to tell? Um, and so that's when it hit me that I, I needed to somehow make a film that could deal with those two perspectives, the micro and the macro, the micro being my friendship with my friend and the macro being all these uh, big world global topics that we, we, we are so exposed to and kind of how those both 
world, uh, you know, what happens in your personal life and what happens, you know, in the big news are interconnected. And that was, you know, and this documentary is sort of experimental at the end, but I, I wanted it to be that that balance and, and for, you know, inspiring people to try to find that connection between the micro and the macro, essentially. You know, Andres, if I had a nickel for every time I have said the, that exact phrase on my show about how what distinguishes oftentimes what distinguishes a good documentary from a great documentary is this ability to inform a greater issue with something that we can all relate to. That's the micro, that's the macro, right? And how it plays out, how it's significant and why it should matter to you as a human being that you should be concerned about. They may seem like distant places and things that would never affect your life when in fact that's not the case and increasingly more so as, as we get further and further down the road in terms of these huge issues which you identify in the universality of it all. Uh, we're going to have to deal with them whether we want to or not. I think there's a certain amount of if I move to the mountains and I don't ever talk to another human being, I'm not going to have to deal with all these issues. And that's not going to, that's just not going to be the case moving forward. Is that a fair assessment? I mean, no, I, I agree. I mean, I see it as some sort of awakening of your critical thinking and of the connections that a lot of things have. I think there's people that go throughout their life without making that connection, without seeing that if I get to know a little bit about the story of my neighbor, Literally, the person who has been there since I was a kid and, and really got to know the roots, where they're from, why did they took some decisions in life? Yeah, so I, I see it as this perspective that awakens your critical thinking. Once you can, again, as I was saying, like put the micro into the macro and understand those correlations that exist. And maybe me doing this documentary is trying to push more people to have that awakening, uh, to, to be able to, to see the hidden connections and links within what happens in their own reality and be more aware of where everything came from. Well, you certainly make us aware of it. And I think that's the, you know, in terms of your responsibility as a filmmaker and an artist and as a human being, you have presented us with a spectrum of issues and you show this connectivity. And I think that's, I wouldn't say all you can do, but it's the, it's the basic level of someone who is trying to affect some kind of change in the world is to say, okay, here it is. Now here's, for, it's for you as, as an individual to say, where do I fit into this? How can I affect this in a way that is going to be a positive influence on whatever issue that we ran through that long list of, but um, let's, let's, I want to talk about this connection that you make between Yemen and Costa Rica and how they're very much entwined in the same issues. And let's, I mean, along the way, migration, which I love the way you put this, this premise of migration in the world is, first of all, it's been it's since the beginning of the species of human beings, we have migrated. And now that migration is being impacted in ways that um, you can describe better than I can. So let's talk about Yemen and Costa Rica and how all that kind of ties together. So yeah, so that, that comparison, Yemen, Costa Rica, it's very random, right? It's, it's yeah. part of what makes the film, I guess, like interesting. And it's my country where I'm from and Yemen, which is a country where my best friend is from. 
and they're like radically different. If you if you analyze them, uh, you know what we've heard. If you open any book, it's, it's it's completely different. The nature, even the setting. But at the same time, uh, the fact that me and Emma can communicate and, and and can be friends and can understand what certain things mean are you know shows that there are some commonalities. And the in in the documentary the the way I present it is that migration, well, for migration, you always need the origin country and the destination country. Right. So sometimes, you know, in Costa Rica, Costa Rica is more of a destination country for migrants uh, from the north of uh, Central America, Nicaragua, El Salvador, whereas Yemen is an origin country because of the civil war that has been happening there. Uh, and so a lot of migrants from Yemen go out, out of Yemen looking for a better life in other uh, destination countries. So explaining the relationship that a country like Yemen has with its neighboring or, or European countries with the relationship that Costa Rica has with the with Nicaragua in the, uh, like I put it in the film, uh, Nicaragua is the neighboring country of Costa Rica where a bunch of migrants uh, arrive. Uh, from Nicaragua to Costa Rica. So just making, seeing those correlations, seeing that the same principles of migration apply no matter where you put them around the world was something that I definitely felt that I needed to show. That there's always an origin, there's always a destination and there's a motivation. Um, and at the end of, of the, after I go through a bunch of uh, cases, because I also analyze the Middle Eastern migration in Europe, uh, and I analyze other migrations that have been around the world. I come to the conclusion that migration is neither something good or bad. It just is. You know, in some cases, it's good. In some cases, it's bad. It is too much, right? Like, you can overwhelm a nation state, like we were just talking about. Um, so, so it's just the movement of people. You have moved places, then you're a, a migrant to some extent. So that's like, it's not something positive or negative. It's just, the result of many other factors that sometimes we don't even take into consideration. In the film, I feel like you gave us a kind of formula, or at least a, a progression of things that happen. If this happens, this is likely to happen. If that happens, this also is likely to happen. There's kind of this progressive chain of events that happens over the course of these countries that you describe in the film, and it's repeatable. I mean, that's the, I mean, it's the basic of science, right? Is your experiment repeatable? Is it reliable to say that this, if this is true, then this is true? And it blows my mind. It really, this is the part of the film that I just pretty aware of this stuff <laughs> in my life about kind of knowing about the world. And I never thought of it in, in these terms. And I have to tell you, it really does make sense. It really does logically follow from one to the other. And in, so I want to kind of back up because I, I feel like I'm jumping ahead a little bit. You mentioned migration and how important it is to the human experience and how common it is. Then there's another, and this is kind of the other window into this world that you bring into it, which is remittance, the impact of people who migrate to another country, the economic impact it has in so many different ways. Let's Let's talk a little bit about that. So, for example, in El Salvador, more than 25% of the GDP 
is remittances. It's money from the migrants who lived most likely in the United States sending, sending it in back to their countries. And there's many economists that say like this is something very positive, you know, because it, it shows that migration can help. Some others say that it's negative because it's not taxable uh, to the U.S. where, but really like the U.S. has no, so to speak, cost because like they're, most of them are irregular migrants, so they don't get access to, to many, so to say, social services. It's just, it, it, it is controversial, but it's just a reality. People, and, and, and also you have to take in consideration for remittances, the culture, like it, culture in Latin America, it's also like culture in, um, in other places that the migrants come from, especially in the Western world, are more family oriented. And so people that go tend to send money back home and they're the main source of income for many of their families. And, and sometimes going back to their countries, having failed, so to speak, once you go up north is seen as down, right? So, so there's a dependency that exists. And there, you know, you can say it's good, you can say it's bad, but it's just another way in which migration gets manifested. And, and somebody has to do those jobs and, and they're there because of a reason. And, and when we were talking about migration, there's this formula of migration. Part of the formula is the demographic and economic needs of the different nation states and how they shape their decisions, you know? Like for Germany, it was, um, a good decision, so to speak, maybe not politically for Angela Merkel in 2015 when they allowed migrants from the Middle East to come, but demographically speaking, it needed to be done because Germany was going down in fertility rates and they needed more young people. And so it just shows that sometimes the demographic needs and the economical needs trump any other need. And you have to look at which place and time you are to see whether a country is open or close to migrants. In an ideal world, you know, there will be more movement and remittances. Some of them could be taxed uh, and some of them not, but I do think that as of now, with the laws in place in the destination countries, it is truly what is helping many, many developing countries go out of poverty. And that is very something very much needed. Right. It does also speak to the idea of a fair wage. People, this is the thing I think people often lose sight of. People come to the United States to work, do so under some incredibly stressful and dangerous circumstances. And I can't imagine, I've lived in California, not even just the United States, California, my entire life. If you told me that in order to survive, I needed to move to Argentina or the Philippines, I, I, I can't imagine. I can't imagine doing that. And then knowing that once I got to the Philippines, that my daily life would be shadowed by the, by the thought that I might be found out. And all of those things that go along with this and the, the opportunity for corruption, the opportunity for exploitation. I mean, I get that it's good in some manner that money is going back into a country from people who have lived there going back to their families. That's a on, that's a positive in some sense, but it's the idea that they have to do that in order to maintain some structure, family structure, or at least some level of economic viability. That's just yeah, and, and it's literally you are on if 
you're one meter in Mexico and then you just one step into another land, it's like suddenly so much more money, so to speak, uh, the minimum wage, the laws, everything. And yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's, uh, it's a situation that is hard. And, and that's why I try not to like present any sort of solution, just a perspective in which to see it because as soon as you jump into saying like, oh, this is the solution, you know, you don't know, you might be wrong. Uh, and we have to be a little bit uh, humble to say like, oh, I know the solution to human migration because it's migration again, it's not really a solution. It's not really a conflict, it's not really the problem itself. So there's no solution to migration. It will always happen, sometimes more, sometimes less, but it will always be there. And what you want is to solve the, the root causes that make people migrate. And I just wanted to say, like, one of the things that truly, I guess, broke my heart as I was like doing my research is that the poorest people, I, I mean, like the, the, the ones that are like in the lower percentages in, in, in socioeconomically, they don't even get to migrate. Migrating is a expensive journey. For example, if you're going from like the Middle East to Europe and you have to go, it's like $10,000 that sometimes like these migrants pay to risk their lives to almost get drowned in the Mediterranean. Not everybody can have like $10,000 to pay a coyote or a coyote or, or somebody to. So it's like, yeah, we talk about the migrants, but if we're talking about world poverty and like the real poor people in this world, they cannot migrate. It's, it's impossible for them. They cannot even aspire to live in war zones or in anything. So just a thought to have. Yeah, no, it, all those things are true. When they talk about the disparity between the richest and the poorest in the United States and how there's like five families that have as much wealth as the bottom 50% of the country now. And when they talk about, they think it's within two or 300 individuals have as much cumulative wealth as the rest of the world combined. How much more Machiavellian, how much more Darwinian, how much more uneven, and do you? I mean, how you can't really. This would have been embarrassing to the French monarchs, or any you name it, the Roman emperors. This, this is un, This is literally unprecedented. Film. By the way, I want to remind our listeners before we go any further, because I, I want to remind people that we're speaking with Andres Broneman, and he is the director of the film, the the universality of it all, and it is as incredible documentary film. And uh, there are just so many things in this film that are uh, great topics to discuss and to understand the ramifications of it. But in the film, you talk about how you went sort of backwards in time to study migration. And then you went to the present day and how it relates to Imad and you and the present. And then you made this realization, and I think I'll leave it to you to, to describe it, of all of these challenges that have been a part of history of humanity, and they've been daunting challenges for migrants, people moving around the world, the future. Let's talk a little bit about what we're what's what awaits us uh, moving forward. I, the the future of migration, so to speak, is is, is climate induced migration, um, and and you know when when people politicians sometimes say it's an existential crisis i don't think people truly understand why like the social aspect of climate change you know you might think is the big wave the big hurricanes like okay and we all lived through the big hurricane like you evacuate you're fine you go and so there's not like 
like an understanding of how bad things can get uh, when some places of the world become unable to host human life, so to speak. Uh, places that are getting flooded and the more they get flooded, you know, like there's no, there cannot be any agriculture or transportation. And there's places in the world that they, we know are about to drown, like uh, Bangladesh, uh, like, and there's already a lot of places that are taking the precautions knowing that they might drown, like the Netherlands. Like they know that if they don't build uh, some sort of wall for, for the, the high sea levels, they're out, right? And, and it's just going to become more unsustainable to maintain coastal cities. And it's going to, I think people don't understand that climate change will impact agriculture when there is uh, an impact in the basic basket or there's an impact in food or energy supplies then you have a political and social instability and that's what generates migration more unprecedented migration and so it's not that it's just going to happen in the u.s like there's some internal migration that is going to happen in the united states of course of people that are not able to live where everything got burned but there's also going to be migration from other places where the the certification is a problem or flooding or drought is a problem so yeah that is like what do we do then right uh, and and i don't want to like be super uh, negative but you know talking to experts it's it's nothing we can do to impede it at this point we can like somehow mitigate Yes. Right, like <laughs> right. now it's about mitigation. Right. It's not about like trying to stop it because it's already done. The the repercussions of our carbon emissions, we're gonna see them for the next thirty years. Even if we stop emitting every what stops, we stop now. We're gonna still see increases in temperature and flooding in thirty years to come. So it's hard not to go to this kind of dark place to describe what it yeah. looks like. Now, I mean, people might say, well, there are technologies that are coming on board. We're getting away from fossil fuels. The gasoline-powered car is beginning to fade somewhat. And and that's all. These are things that are positive. But I question our ability to really cooperate because increasingly, at least in the United States, and I fear around the world, people are taking irrational positions based on some glorified idea about their country's history, which it seems to me the the, what's happening here in the United States is sort of, you know, this uh, manifest destiny, American exceptionalism, all these kind of antiquated, outdated, false perceptions of the of the, their own country, our own country. But I wonder, and I said this to you before we got started, I wonder what happens when Mexico City is extracting almost all of its groundwater. It's been a it has had a rich source of water. There are what 12 million people in Mexico City alone. They're starting to deplete their resources. What happens when five or 10 million people show up at the border and have nowhere else to go? Do we start shooting them? Do we what do we do? What literally because at some point you're going to be talking about the viability of Texas and New Mexico and California and Arizona and Louisiana, their ability to be able to sustain human life. Yeah. And the U.S. military's prime directive is to maintain the integrity of the United States. I, I mean, this, these are very severe examples that I'm citing. Bangladesh. No, I, I agree. 
Jakarta. Jakarta yeah. sinking. Yeah. Jakarta's literally sinking. One of the most populous cities on the planet in, in Indonesia is literally sinking because they've sucked all the groundwater out from under. Mm. So go ahead. I'm sorry. I, 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 no, 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 no. I mean, like what, what you're saying, like, for example, what do I do if I was the U.S. and I know Mexico will have this issue in a couple of years coming? I you know, get a defense contract out, you know, liberate that money and really invest it in water security on your neighboring country. Things yeah. like that need to start happening because you can't just be like, no, America first. Yeah, every country needs some sort of that, you know, some sort of identity to, so we are not all this like global, you know, culture and like colors and all that. But at the same time, it's like, if, if the U.S. sees Mexico stability for their own interests, you know, and, 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 and countries see, and this is especially with like also smaller countries, because yeah, we have like the 10 huge countries that, you, you know, in my opinion, they should be considered even like continents because Russia, the U.S., Canada, they're like continents in comparison to Costa Rica, Nicaragua, all this like very, very small states that cannot take any decision they always have to take it with consensus, right? And and so so yeah, I feel that, that if we see the connections, excess migration in the future is gonna be bad for me. What do I do to impede it? Right? And and you're right, it's not gonna be through shooting people or through building walls. They're gonna climb it, they're gonna touch the bullets, you know? And so I think what you have to do is invest in the root causes even though that's something that a lot of politicians are saying in the u.s and they're giving them a lot of i don't know i, I know they're right in the u.s when you know kamala harris says like oh the root causes the root causes but nothing gets done right, right? and and right. so yeah I, I think it is the root causes it is the right line that they're saying now they only have to do it <laughs> right right exactly and the pandemic has shown that there is money to do that so well, the U.S. military, since I believe about 2002 or 2003, somewhere in that general time frame, has been identifying climate change, climate damage as the number one threat to the United States above Russia, China. They've been saying that. They, the generals, I mean, if you could find a more conservative less likely to, to side with uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the world than those people. They like to know who they are. And they're identifying this as the most threatening uh, situation that the U.S. and other countries, because not only is the U.S. being threatened by climate change, in, in, but it's also the instability that you described in countries that could, some of which, a few, have nuclear weapons. And and if they're going to go down, they're going to, you know, who knows? I mean, I, you can go crazy. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, you know, you just, you just don't know. And that's why everyone in the world should see the universality of it all, because it asks these questions and it presents them in a way that I can say for myself, I hadn't thought about it in those terms. And I hadn't thought about it in the through line that you're able to construct from migration to all of these different issues that we talked about, colonialism, neoliberalism, globalization, identity policy, fertility rates. There you go. Europe is freaking out over their fertility rates because and they're worried about all these people coming from Yemen and who knows where. And it's eventually they're going to there's going to be a mosque on every corner and they're going to I mean, they're every you know, it's 
it's this is where we are. We're in the we're in this era of hysterical politics when we have real problems to deal with. And God, <laughs> God help us. Yeah, you're you're right. And and I think it's about leaving the politics a little bit aside and looking at the facts. You know, not just because you're a bit skeptical, it means you're a conspiracy theory theories, or not just because you criticize something that the Democratic Party did, you're like a Trump supporter. It's like we need to start looking at things more of a centrist point of view in my, in my, you know, more yeah. not centrist in the political spectrum that they chose from us, but centrist in the actual, you know, yes. objective reality. Reality world. Yeah. You know, otherwise you're going to have to side with those, those guys in the tinfoil hats that are sitting in the Pentagon. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, those guys, those crazy people that sit in the Pentagon and other places around the world, all the science is in, the science is done. The science is over. That game is that that's it's coming. And what you said, we got to be ready. Well, Andres, I I so you I think you can tell how much I enjoyed your documentary film and I urge people to go to theuniversalityfilm.com. They can find out more about it. You can find out about you as a, a, a filmmaker and it's also going to be posted to the filmschoolradio.com website for people who want to know more how can people see the film where will they be able to see this so for the next few months it's going to be available in indiepixfilms.com uh soon it's going to be available uh, to watch in, Am in amazon video prime video also in like, google play and, and like different platforms but that's uh, around like the end of the year so IndieBigStilms.com for now. Great. Every once in a while, a documentary film comes along. For me, years ago, Cowspiracy came along. I it got no publicity. I didn't really even know anything. And somebody approached me and said, you should watch this. It's something I think you'd, you, know, you might be interested in. And I think through word of mouth, it's one of those films that people, opt, I can't tell you how many people have said they've seen it, which I wouldn't have expected. And I think this is going to be one of those films. I think you're, I truly do. I think people are going to watch this film and say, you know what? I just saw this and I think you, you should check it out. And I hope so. I truly thank do. You, I, thank you, Mike, for helping me spread the word with your audience. Like it, it means a lot for you well, to take the time and to watch it and everything. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Music